from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, July 17th. I'm Marco Werman. People in Yemen are starting to resent U.S. influence there. The U.S. ambassador's rhetoric isn't popular either. One thing that he's very well known for is referring to the Yemeni government as we, which certainly leaves many people here unhappy. And later, the bright side of security problems ahead of the London Olympics. I would be uh, happier if I were an athlete or a spectator that they'd brought in 3,500 more military people and not using rent-a-guards, which is what they were trying to get. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Of all the Arab Spring uprisings, the one in Yemen is the only one to have ended with a negotiated solution. The country's longtime dictator, Ali Abdullah Saleh, was persuaded to step aside, ceding power to his deputy. That's prompted many to consider a so-called Yemen scenario for Syria. But the reality on the ground in Yemen is still complicated. There are complaints from Islamists that they're being kept out of the country's nascent political dialogue. And some in Yemen aren't happy about what they call American interference there. The United States has taken a hands-on role in Yemen, pumping in millions of dollars in humanitarian aid and ramping up military assistance for the government's ongoing fight against al-Qaeda. Many in Yemen are grateful for American help. But the BBC's Natalia Antalava, who's in Yemen this week, has also found growing resentment and suspicion of the United States. Natalia joins us from the Yemeni capital, Sana'a. Natalia, who precisely is unhappy with the U.S.? Well, I haven't spoken to many people who are happy with the United States. And I think a lot of the anger is uh, focused on the fact that America has been fighting a war that probably many Americans back home aren't very aware of. They have been using drones against al-Qaeda militants in the south of the country, but these drones have been killing many civilians. And interestingly, a lot of the anger against the U.S. is directed at Gerald Feinstein, the U.S. ambassador here, whose role here is seen by many as a little too prominent for a diplomat. I mean, one thing that he's very well known for is referring to the Yemeni government as we, which certainly leaves many people here unhappy. He's also seen as being very close to certain politicians in the Yemeni government for being too heavy-handed, too involved. What about Firestein's actions are heavy-handed specifically? For example, he recently appeared on Yemeni television and said we will not allow the release of an imprisoned journalist, Abdel Shai, who the U.S. believes is linked to al-Qaeda, but who is known here for exposing the killing of 35 women and children in a U.S. drone strike. So it's that sort of language that certainly doesn't go down well here. Now, there have been some articles making the rounds about uh, Gerald Firestein, and one of them actually suggests that uh, he's personally drawing up the target list for U.S. drone strikes. Do, do Yemenis believe that? And what's to support that? 
Yemenis certainly believe it. Uh, there is no evidence to support it at all. At least I don't have any, but certainly Yemenis that I'm talking to believe it. There have been actually leaked documents about him suggesting personnel changes at the interior ministry, for example. Whether they stand up or not is another matter. But, you know, Yemenis do believe that his involvement is that heavy handed. Now, you've been covering the humanitarian crisis in uh, Yemen, Natalia. The the ambassador, Firestein, uh, has been quoted as saying that the U.S. is contributing $175 million to providing food, supporting a national dialogue in elections, helping rebuild uh, the south of the country and helping displaced people in the north. That would seem to be a pretty good strategy to win hearts and minds. Is it working? Well, I think the money that the U.S. is spending on the humanitarian effort is nothing compared to what it's spending on military, on the strikes, on training the Yemeni army. And many people believe a lot of that money goes into the pockets of corrupt officials here. So the U.S. is certainly not winning hearts and minds in Yemen right now. In fact, I've heard reports that in some refugee camps, some camps of the internally displaced people, people have been refusing aid with USAID logo on it. Now, these are only reports, but considering the anti-American sentiment that I'm hearing in the streets, it's something that I personally would believe. Natalia, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. The BBC's Natalia Antalava speaking with us from Sana, Yemen. Now to another banking scandal involving another British bank. First, there was Barclays. It's still being hauled over the coals for manipulating bank rates and profiting from it. Now the spotlight is on HSBC. The bank is under the gun for allowing itself to be used as a money laundering conduit for suspicious funds from Mexico, Iran, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. After releasing a report on a year-long investigation of HSBC, U.S. Senator Carl Levin put the findings this way. Global banks have caused the world a lot of heartache. Our focus today is on one global bank that failed to comply with rules aimed at combating terrorism, drug trafficking, and the money laundering that fuels so much of what threatens the global community. Shaheen Nazirapour of the Financial Times has been following events on Capitol Hill. Uh, Shaheen, HSBC allowed dubious deposits from several places, including Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iran. But it really looks like Mexico pushed this to the extreme in taking billions of dollars of bulk cash, originating allegedly from drug cartels, then flowing that money through HSBC's U.S. branch. Describe this and how it's known that this money is, in fact, drug money. There were key compliance people along the way who warned that the amount of cash they were transporting, uh, it just it didn't make sense for all of it to be legitimate. One of their top you know, anti-money laundering officials suspected that as much as 70% of the laundered cash moving through Mexico in U.S. dollar notes was going through the Mexican subsidiary. And law enforcement and bank regulators, they all warned HSBC several times that there's no way you could be transporting this much in cash without it involving drug proceeds. In the case of Iran, what were those deposits about? HSBC would essentially delete any identifying information. They could route these transactions through their worldwide system, uh, exchange U.S. dollars, provide U.S. dollars, conduct business in U.S. dollars without setting off any alarm bells internally, which would then necessitate further reviews. What does uh, HSBC have to say about this? Uh, have they denied it? It's interesting. They haven't actually outright denied anything. They've apologized for lapses. They've apologized for misbehavior. 
Um, they've pledged to do a better job. They've overhauled their worldwide compliance regime. They've sacked people. Others have been forced to resign or have resigned voluntarily. They've been very apologetic. Why was there not a more aggressive push by authorities to get to the bottom of what was going on at HSBC, especially in, in its Mexico branch? According to the Senate investigations panel, the regulators didn't do enough. They weren't fast enough. They weren't hard enough. They didn't penalize HSBC to the point where HSBC felt that it was forced to drastically improve its compliance regime. I mean, HSBC is a fairly prominent bank. Americans who've landed at Heathrow Airport will have seen the bank's logo plastered all over those jetways there. What are the consequences for HSBC if lawmakers lose patience with them? It's funny you say that. Carl Levin is essentially threatening HSBC with the loss of its U.S. banking license. Now, he doesn't have the authority to demand that or to essentially revoke its license, but the message he's communicating is that if HSBC continues to run afoul of U.S. rules and if U.S. regulators don't crack down on the bank sufficiently to incentivize proper behavior, then the bank should lose access to the U.S. I mean, at this point right now for HSBC, it's a cost issue because they're having to spend more on compliance, and it's a reputational issue because their name is being dragged through the mud. But if they were to lose access to the U.S., I can't even begin to calculate what kind of effect that could have on the bank. Shaheen Nazirapour of the Financial Times on a damning report about British bank HSBC by U.S. senators. Shaheen, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. The German government has come out on the side of Jews and Muslims in a legal fight over circumcision. Chancellor Angela Merkel said yesterday that Germany risks becoming a laughingstock after a court ruled last month that the circumcision of, circumcision of young boys is illegal. Parliamentary leaders say they intend to pass a law ensuring that the procedure will be allowed. But for now, doctors are wary and religious leaders are angry. David Levitz reports from Berlin. Over the past 250 years, Berlin's Jewish hospital has seen a lot. But Dr. Richard Stern never thought he'd see this. We've already had to cancel four or five planned circumcisions. The parents are disappointed, and some of them have no idea where to turn. Doctors across Germany are refusing to perform circumcisions on young boys, except in cases of medical necessity. They say they're afraid of prosecution after the regional court ruling that the circumcision of a four-year-old Muslim boy amounted to grievous bodily harm. The court said that circumcision violated the boy's constitutional right to bodily integrity. The court said it was the child's right to decide, once he reaches adulthood, whether he wants to have his body irreversibly changed. The decision has outraged Germany's Jewish and Muslim minorities. Circumcision of young boys is integral to both religious traditions. Dr. Richard Stern says Jewish law in particular is very clear on the matter. For Jews, circumcision is a biblical commandment, and it's supposed to be done on the eighth day. We're also talking about an ancient tradition that goes back over 3,000 years. And now, for three weeks, Germany has been plunged into a heated debate over the ritual. The country's foreign minister immediately sided with Jews and Muslims in demanding the practice be protected. But the rest of the government remained silent. And one poll showed the majority of Germans agreed with the judges that circumcision should be outlawed. Late last week, the discussion reached a boiling point when an emergency summit of European Orthodox rabbis declared the court's decision, quote, the worst attack on Jewish life in Germany since the Holocaust. 
The very next day, the German government broke its silence. We want Muslim and we want Jewish religious life in Germany, said government spokesman Stefan Seibert. Responsibly performed circumcisions must be possible in this country, free from prosecution. But the legal situation remains confusing. The court ruling last month only affects one jurisdiction directly, but experts say there's no telling how much that one decision could influence other courts across Germany. All major political parties are now calling for a law that expressly protects circumcision, so it looks like it's just a matter of time before the legal gray zone is cleared up. But the question is, how much time? Parliament doesn't get back from summer break until September. At a Turkish market in Berlin, one Muslim mother who didn't give her name tells me she and other families won't wait for Parliament to act. If they have to, they'll get their sons circumcised abroad. We weren't sure at first whether we'd get it done here or in Turkey, but now it looks like it's going to be Turkey. Turkey does have doctors too, and at least they'll let us say prayers. German Jews may have the option of relying on traditional circumcisers known as moils. However, there are only a few of these in Germany. Even if the government does pass a law to protect circumcision, legal experts say it's going to be a tricky matter. Hans-Michael Heinig is a law professor at the University of Göttingen. Ende handelt es sich um eine Kollision zweier grundlegender Rechtsgüter. In the end, we're talking about a collision between two fundamental constitutional rights. On the one hand, the right of parents to give their children a religious upbringing, and on the other hand, the right to bodily integrity, which is also quite important. These competing rights were written into Germany's constitution after World War II in response to Nazi atrocities. They were intended to protect vulnerable populations. Today, Germany's Jewish population is small, only around 100,000. But the country has 4 million Muslims. One side effect of the court's ruling has been to foster solidarity between Germany's Jewish, Muslim, and Christian religious leaders, who've all come out against the decision. Their concerns have been echoed by denouncements from the Turkish government and the Israeli parliament. Since the Holocaust, Germany's worked hard to build a reputation for tolerance. Chancellor Angela Merkel herself has admitted that Germany's reputation is at stake. For The World, I'm David Levitz in Berlin. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. London Olympics countdown, 10 days. And the mayor of London, Boris Johnson, says the city is doing pretty well with all the preparations. Sure, there's a constant rain, huge traffic delays, and an embarrassing shortage of security guards. On that last point, the head of the firm providing security for the Games today apologized for failing to hire enough staff. He called it a humiliating shambles. To be fair, it's rare for anyone to stage the games without setbacks and complaints. Remember Atlanta? Centennial Park, this way and to the left. Two and a half blocks, downhill. How long does this journey normally take you? This journey would normally take me from Dollarville to downtown, I would say about uh, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And today is taking us about... Um... About an hour. The next step, which is the big bet, that Greece can organize unique and safe Olympic Games. You on time? This is a, yes, of course we are on time. 
the fog you see is based on the basis of humidity and heat. It does not mean that this fog is the same as pollution. The most important thing is that the health of the athletes be protected. Well, the Winter Olympics lacking one thing, and that's winter weather. Temperatures at Vancouver well above normal, and the snowpack at lower elevations is non-existent. It rains more in Rome than it does in London. That's the key statistic. It does. Let me tell you, I can give you the official meteorological statistics. It, it is officially not raining in London 94% of the time. Lost bus drivers in Atlanta in 96, air pollution in Beijing four years ago, rain in London. There's always something to gripe about when the Olympic Games come to town. John Powers of the Boston Globe has been covering the Olympics since the 1976 Games in Montreal uh, pretty well. John, that's how London Mayor Boris Johnson describes preparations for the Olympics in his city. Uh, For your part, uh, does that inspire confidence? Well, I think mostly what you look at is what were your expectations? For example, ours were very low for Athens, and they turned out to be wonderful because there were no disasters. Ours were very high for Beijing, and they were wonderful. And I think one thing that London has had an issue with is being compared to Beijing, and I think they've been trying to lower expectations. So far, what we're seeing are normal uh, in the days leading up to the Games, What it'll be a problem is when you have the opening ceremonies, if you're still having transport problems, that will be considered a broken system, and that's real trouble. Now, how concerned should athletes and spectators be about the security shortfalls? I think, actually, I would be uh, happier if I were an athlete or a spectator that they'd brought in 3,500 more military people and not using rent-a-guards, which is what they were trying to get. Uh, It may have a little more armed camp feel, although uh, Jacques Raga, the IOC president, said it'll still be fun. You won't have people running around with machine guns. Uh, But I think what's been uh, a bit surprising is that they've had seven years to get ready for all this, and you've got, you know, what are major issues propping up at the last minute. As for the traffic in London, I mean, several busloads of athletes and officials were trapped for four hours yesterday. Uh, Their driver was trying to shuttle them from Heathrow Airport to the Olympic Village, and that's a trip that should have taken only uh, 45 minutes. I know they can't stop the rain, but can the London Organizing Committee at least get the traffic straightened out? Well, I think this was the major issue that they had other than would the games be secure, was how would people get around this huge city? Uh, One thing that may actually make it worse for the average Londoner is they have uh, Olympic reserved lanes that are supposed to uh, speed the athletes and the media around events, but it'll make things slower for everybody else. If it's a sound system uh, and well-planned, then by the time the games start, they should have things figure out. Uh, you know, the, the issue, I think, with the stranded bus was uh, it was a new bus driver, didn't know London, and was relying on a GPS that he couldn't understand. If you have a whole lot of guys like that, uh, then uh, the organizers are in for some trouble. All right. So at least on this case, uh, you're giving them a pass. So far. <laughs> okay. Now, let, let's face it, though, John, summer and winter Olympics, uh, every two years when the games happen, people do complain. But doesn't all that just disappear on opening night, the moment that torch hits the cauldron? The griping stops for two weeks, doesn't it? Usually it does, if these things are only glitches. But, for example, people were complaining throughout Lake Placid, throughout Atlanta, because they had transportation systems that just didn't function. Uh, I remember one night, the night run of the luge at Lake Placid, and it was merry and people drinking hot chocolate, and they all finished and went down to the parking lot, and there were no buses. And it took an hour, and one bus finally showed up, and it was like the last chopper out of Saigon. 
people still talk about Lake Placid and Atlanta as to what goes wrong when something really stays wrong. So as someone who's covered the Olympics since 1976, what's the best you've seen? What's the worst you've seen? The best in terms of overall experience was Sydney in 2000. Uh, They were wonderful games, great weather. The hosts were fantastic. Uh, No matter what came up, uh, the response was, no worries, mate. Uh, Everyone loved being in Sydney. The worst was probably Atlanta. I mean, steamy climate aside, the fact is that you had two major systems that didn't work. The communication system didn't work very well, and the transportation system didn't work very well, and they couldn't fix those throughout the games. You know, very often cities are able to rebound from early glitches, early problems, as Athens did in 2004. There was great concern as to would they be ready, would they be ready, and and back then the joke was that Beijing would be ready for 2008 before Athens was ready for 2004. (laughs) And in fact, for many of us in the media, the media village was not completed, and they put a number of us, including me, in a maternity hospital. It turned out to be a wonderful maternity hospital, air-conditioned, and it was right next to the main press center. Uh, And we even got little gifts that they give for new mothers. And uh, all the formula you can drink. It's exactly. (laughs) I guess you'll be staying at the real village this time. I think we're staying at a Jury's Inn in Islington. Okay. Well, have fun at the inn and uh, enjoy the Olympics, John. Thanks, Marco. John Powers of the Boston Globe. Go online for more of our ongoing London Olympics coverage, including the latest on the security situation and reports from the world's Alex Galifant. That's all at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz is fluttering in the wind. The giant swallowtail butterfly likes to touch down on prickly ash plants. Normally, this tropical butterfly is found more to the south in countries like Mexico or Colombia. But we're looking for a North American city where giant swallowtails have been turning up and where the first native representative of the species recently flew out of its cocoon. The city is located at the confluence of the St. Lawrence and Ottawa Rivers. Scientists there say the giant swallowtail butterfly's habitat is gradually shifting north, given the recent mild winter weather in the province of Quebec. We'll hear what's going on with the giant swallowtail when we come back with the answer later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Filipinos are the second largest Asian immigrant group in the U.S., but they've shied away from politics until now. Our tendency for Filipino Americans is you don't make waves, don't get involved in politics because it's so corrupt where we came from. Ahead, two Filipino Americans who are breaking that tradition in California. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. At least a handful of Nazi war criminals are still at large, more than six decades after the end of World War II. That's according to the Jerusalem-based Simon Wiesenthal Center. 
Investigators there now say that they've located one of those remaining war criminals in Hungary. This week, they tipped off the British tabloid The Sun, whose reporters knocked on the door of Laszlo Csatari, a 97-year-old Budapest resident. Csatari, a former Hungarian police officer, reportedly told the journalists, go away, I didn't do it, before slamming the door. Ephraim Zurov is an investigator at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. I provided the tip to the son and all the information regarding his whereabouts. And this is information that I had already received about 10 months ago from an informant who contacted us in the framework of our Operation Last Chance project, which offers financial rewards for information, which will lead to the prosecution and punishment of Nazi war criminals. So how do you know this man that the son discovered in Budapest, Hungary, is indeed uh, Laszlo Csatari? There are certain checks that were done by government officials and certain checks that we did. And there's no question he, he is living under that name. And it's him. I mean, there's no doubt. What is he accused of doing in World War II? There are two major crimes that he was involved in. The largest one was the mass deportation of 15,700 Jews from the city of Kasha, that's in Hungary, or Kosice, as it's known now in Slovak, in Slovak, to the Auschwitz death camp in the spring of 1944. And a second crime that we just not long ago learned about his possible uh, involvement was that in the summer of 1941, the Hungarian authorities rounded up 18,000 Jews all over Hungary who either lacked Hungarian citizenship or could not prove Hungarian citizenship. And these men and women, I think and children also, were deported or were expelled to Kamenets-Podolsk in the Ukraine, where they were almost all of them were murdered. And among the 18,000 were 300 people from the city of uh, Kasha, or Koshitsa, who were rounded up by Chatari. And how certain are you that uh, these allegations can be pinned on Mr. Chatari? I am fully confident that the information we have is correct, is accurate, and can be uh, proven in a court of law. Now, the investigators at The Sun apparently shadowed uh, Mr. Chattari as he went out shopping. Uh, what do authorities in Budapest know about him? And is he totally free to live the rest of his days uh, in Budapest? I think that question has to be posed to the authorities. I gave them the information on his whereabouts. It's not exactly clear what, if anything, they have done aside from verifying his identity. The French apparently want to arrest him. There are now Jewish students in Budapest protesting outside uh, Mr. Chattery's apartment. What happens now? It's all in the hands of the Hungarian prosecutors. And they're the ones who have to make the decision. They're the ones who ultimately will or will not take legal action against him. Have you dealt with the Hungarian authorities on Nazi war criminals in the past? And how do they react generally? Frankly, I have a long history of dealing with them. From 2005, when we found uh, Charles Zente living in Australia, he was a Hungarian Nazi war criminal. And in the Capiro case, and in the case of Lajos Polgar and Charles Zente, I have quite a bit of experience, and it's mixed. In the Zente case, the Hungarians asked for his extradition from Australia very promptly. On the other hand, in the Capiro case, it took them more than four and a half years from the time I gave them the evidence until he was actually put on trial. And we found him, he was 92 years old when I found him. So you can imagine that that delay uh, did not help our case.
And with Chattery at 97, I imagine delays could just, uh, you know, he may just die before you even get what you want. Well, that's the fear and that's the danger. And there are so many different ways to make sure that this case will not be brought to justice. And this is my cause for concern. Not, I have no concern about the evidence, the accusations, the identity or any of that. It's just a matter of time for you. That's your biggest challenge, you're saying? No, the question of political will. Is there political will in Budapest to put this person on trial? And you're concerned there's not enough political will in Budapest? That is definitely one of my concerns. Dr. Ephraim Zurov heads the Jerusalem office of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. He's also the author of Operation Last Chance, One Man's Quest to Bring Nazi Criminals to Justice. Dr. Zurov, thank you. Thank you. We should note that Hungary's own investigation of Laszlo Chattery is just starting. So far, Hungarian investigators have called the evidence against him flimsy. And a prominent Hungarian Holocaust historian, Laszlo Karsai, himself the son of a Holocaust survivor, has described Chattery as a small fish. Karsai told the BBC, I could name 2,000 people responsible for worse crimes than he was. Colombian politician Sigafredo Lopez spent seven years as a hostage of leftist guerrillas. He endured forced marches, abusive guards, and the constant threat of execution. Lopez was finally freed in 2009, but his nightmare goes on. Now he's under arrest. He's accused of helping the guerrillas plan his own kidnapping, an operation that led to the deaths of 11 lawmakers. Reporter John Otis has a story. Back in 2002, guerrillas of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, kidnapped Lopez and 11 other state legislators in the southern city of Cali. The FARC wanted to swap them for jailed guerrillas, but the Colombian government refused, so the hostages languished in the jungle. That's Lopez in a 2007 FARC video to prove he was alive. Soon afterwards, the FARC executed 11 of the 12 hostages. The rebels panicked when they thought the Colombian army was launching a rescue operation. Lopez was the only survivor. He says he was being punished for bad behavior and was in another part of the camp during the massacre. Two years later, the FARC released Lopez. At his homecoming, covered by Colombian TV, his wife and sons were so excited, they nearly knocked Lopez to the ground in a group embrace. But now, government prosecutors claim Lopez helped pull off the mass kidnapping. Their main evidence is this 2002 rebel video. A man in the video provides rebels with details of the layout and security of the legislative building in Cali shortly before the guerrilla raid. The man's face is partially obscured, but prosecutors claim it's Lopez. A security guard leads me through the building where the kidnapping took place 10 years ago. I'm here to see Carlos Orozco. He was elected to replace his brother, one of the 11 lawmakers killed by the FARC. Orozco's not sure whether Lopez is innocent or guilty. He says the raid was very well planned. There had to have been lawmakers or people close to them who gave information to the guerrillas. Lopez has also come under suspicion because he once served as town mayor in a rebel stronghold where politicians were forced to collaborate with the guerrillas. In addition, he emerged from captivity looking better fed than other newly freed hostages. 
prosecutors say Lopez may have helped the FARC in exchange for money and that he may have been double-crossed by the guerrillas, which would explain his seven years in captivity. But other factors cast doubt on his colluding with the FARC. Olga Lucia Gomez heads the Free Country Foundation, which counsels relatives of hostages. She says it defies logic that Lopez would take part in a crime that would confine him to a jungle prison for so long. To think that someone would kidnap himself, then to make the crime look real, stay separated from his family for seven years, I just can't get my head around that. A voice test conducted by the FBI at Lopez's request showed that his voice does not match the voice on the FARC videotape. What's more, intercepted guerrilla emails refer to Lopez as just another hostage rather than a FARC collaborator. Speaking to reporters from a Bogota detention center, Lopez predicted he would be exonerated, but he worries his reputation has been damaged beyond repair. Lopez's lawyers claim ambitious government prosecutors pounced on the Lopez case to make a name for themselves. Colombia's attorney general recently acknowledged that the case could fall apart. This plaza in Cali is adorned with plaques honoring the 11 slain lawmakers, including Juan Carlos Narvaez. His widow is Fabiola Perdomo. She says she dreams about her husband all the time. For Perdomo, the liberation of Lopez was bittersweet. She's envious that he survived while Juan Carlos did not. But Lopez provided something precious by telling her daughter about the last five years of her father's life. Perdomo is convinced Lopez is innocent. She also wonders whether her husband, had he survived, might have found himself in the same legal limbo. She says it's scary and painful to see how fast a victim can be recast as a perpetrator. For The World, I'm John Otis, Cali, Colombia. Filipinos represent the second largest group of Asian immigrants in the United States, second only to Chinese. But those numbers don't seem to translate into political power. For one thing, there's never been a Filipino-American in the state legislature in California, and that's somewhat surprising considering nearly half of Filipino-Americans call California home. But now two Filipino-born Californians are set to change that. The world's Jason Margolis has their story. Jennifer Ong and Rob Bonta both moved to California from the Philippines as children. Both now live in the Bay Area and are in their early 40s. Ong is an optometrist and Bonta is a lawyer. This June, both ran for the California State Assembly as Democrats in neighboring districts and both qualified for a November runoff election. When I met the two candidates recently, I asked them what Filipino leaders did they look up to along their political journeys? Um... You know, it's interesting. Over like, uh... I I don't know that I I ever looked at political leaders. Unfortunately, it's kind of sad, huh? It's not um, entirely surprising that Ong and Bonta stumbled for an answer. Jennifer Ong said Filipino Americans generally don't engage in politics. Our tendency for Filipino Americans and most other Asians is you don't make waves, right? That's part of our culture. Be, be a good girl, Jennifer. Don't do that. You know, you're, you're supposed to study hard, get a good education, get a good job, help your family. Other than that, don't make waves. Don't get involved in politics. 
And to many Filipinos, politics isn't a noble endeavor. Philippine politics are notoriously corrupt. Vote buying is standard practice back home. Jennifer Ong is a newcomer to politics. She decided to run when people in the community asked her to do it. Ong is a regular at Asian churches and community centers where she talks to people about health problems endemic in the Asian immigrant community, problems like hepatitis B and diabetes. I met Ong at a cookout at a Buddhist temple in Fremont, and I asked her if she'd also be using the time here to campaign. Um, that's just kind of secondary, because I, I do feel very strange about that that's connection with the church and, and politics. The district Ong is seeking to represent just south of Oakland has a high concentration of Asian and Filipino immigrants. One problem for Ong, though, according to the census during the last presidential election, 49% of Asian American immigrants who were eligible to vote did vote. That's some 14% below the national average. Ong says it's her job to engage people in her community. She thinks she can. When we find then that people um, see someone who looks like them or talks like them or has their shared immigrant experience, and now this person is willing to step up in leadership, seems to be we'll find they get more involved. Because I sure wouldn't do what she's about to do, but she's going to speak for me. She'll have a better idea than someone else who doesn't have that experience. Rob Bonta already represents his community serving as vice mayor for the Bay Area city of Alameda, where we met for coffee. I asked Bonta why he hasn't disengaged from politics like many other Filipinos. He says his political involvement started from an early age. We actually lived and I grew up as a young boy in the headquarters for the United Farm Workers Movement of America. My parents worked directly with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. From the farm fields, Bonta went on to study at Yale, Oxford, and back to Yale for law school. Besides his academic achievements, Bonta was also captain of the Yale soccer team. Bonta says he doesn't campaign much on the possibility of making history for Filipino-Americans, but he doesn't shy away from it either. And he says Filipinos across the country are paying attention. I've had fundraisers that have been very successful in Washington and in New York and in Philadelphia. This is quite a departure for a group that's been dubbed the invisible minority. Filipinos have assimilated well into American culture and, as Jennifer Ong points out, have not made waves. To many, those are admirable qualities. But Ong says Filipino-Americans also struggle with having a cultural identity. In the past, I've seen Filipinos who weren't very proud of being Filipino. And um, I think it's going to change. I see it changing already. So it's time. It's, it's okay to be proud of it. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Fremont, California. For more of our campaign 2012 coverage, including Jason's report on why presidential candidates don't focus on Latin America, just go to theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You'll never guess where a giant swallowtail butterfly has turned up. It's the place we're looking for in today's GeoQuiz. We can say that this swallowtail butterfly normally flies around Central and South America. Maxime Larive is an entomologist and an expert on butterflies. Maxime, tell us where you are and where exactly you've observed this South American butterfly. 
Well, so we're located in Montreal in Canada. What happened is that we found caterpillars on the host plant in our botanical garden. We took three of them aside. There was about a dozen or more on on the host plant, which is a, a citrus plant called prickly ash, which is native to our area. And uh, so these caterpillars were left outside, but in a rearing cage. And the first one, actually, the first adult actually emerged uh, yesterday morning, which we then released in the wild for nature to follow its course. So Montreal is the answer to our geoquist today. A met butterfly is a long way from home, I'd say. How do you explain this uh, swallowtail butterfly being found so far north? For the last decade or so, we, we've witnessed a, a range expansion in, in the, the distribution and the suitable habitat of this, uh, this giant swallowtail in eastern Canada or in eastern North America, uh, next to none. We, we're talking about a range expansion in a decade of over 400 kilometers from the extreme northern edge of its distribution previously to uh, where we are now starting to find it. Uh, all the way up to here in in Montreal, and this this is an event that we, if the, the trends were going to keep going, and which it seems to be the case, was was something bound to happen, and is expected to become part of a, of a new normal, if you want. So, what specifically has changed? I mean, wh- why is it there now? What? Why did this uh, range change? So, in uh, in Canada and in you know in eastern North America, for example, butterfly distribution or their ability to to survive in a specific area is dictated mainly by their capacity to survive the harsh winters that we have. And uh, clearly, the winters being milder and milder over the last uh, decade, or maybe since 1990 especially, have allowed this butterfly. There's always uh, individuals that will will push the boundaries, right, but Mm -hmm. normally fail dramatically at surviving any kind of winter. But they have been able to do so very much further north than we have ever expected. Ten years ago, you would have asked any entomologist in our neck of the woods and told them that the giant swallowtail would soon become part of the native fauna. No one would have believed you. Wow. How do you know this isn't just some weird outlier butterfly, you know, the descendant or a few descendants of a single lost swallowtail and not a whole arrival of many of them? Oh, because the numbers don't lie. We've, uh, you know, uh, for for five years, there's been populations uh, appearing closer and closer to, to Montreal and surviving and overwintering successfully. And we're seeing the abundances increase. So it was, a, if you want, an accident waiting to happen, which it soon will not be a, an accident, but the norm. So the swallowtail is a pretty butterfly, but I'm just wondering, could it become an invasive pest in Canada? No, no. From, from the standpoint of the swallowtail itself, there's no risk that it will become a pest. It's a specialized species that feeds only on a few host plants up here in, in Canada. But what it signals is the speed at which climate is changing. Uh, beautiful, the butterflies are, are adapting to it, but there, there's mounting evidence that their capacity to track the shift in the, in the uh, if you want, we call this uh, the cl- their climate envelope, so the geographical area that is suitable for them to survive, uh, they are lagging behind the speed at which this envelope is shifting north. So this is where it can become uh, dangerous if the slag keeps becoming bigger and bigger. Maxime Larive, an entomologist at Montreal's Insectarium. Maxime, thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Finally today, a musical collaboration featuring artists from Scandinavia. Many Americans are familiar with the singer involved, not so much with the band she's teamed up with, though. Our guest DJ Marius Asp in Oslo has the scoop.
I'm here to tell you about a truly mind-blowing new album called The Cherry Thing by Swedish singer Nana Cherry and the Swedish-Norwegian jazz trio The Thing. Nana Cherry is perhaps best known for the hit single Buffalo Stance from back in 1989 and her collaboration with Yusun Dur, Seven Seconds, which came five years later. The Thing, on the other hand, consists of three of Scandinavia's most respected jazz musicians, saxophonist Mats Gustafsson, bass player Ingebrigt Flatten, and drummer Paul Nilsson Love. Together, they sound like nothing you've heard before. Let's just listen to the first song off the album. This is Cashback, written by Nene Cherry. If I could only be Like I always wanted Pictures in the magazines Might seem more certain But somewhere in between the lines There's no plain reading And you know That's why you put scales on me My soul returnable Exchangeable Impressionable My price tag sell by date Replaceable like vegetables There are a lot of elements in the Cherry Thing sound. Soul, jazz, noise, rock. Somehow it all blends together surprisingly well. And though Nana Cherry and the Thing might seem like an unlikely couple, this really is a very natural match. Not only are the Thing named after a song by Nana's stepfather, free jazz giant Don Cherry, they've played several of his songs since they formed in the year 2000. The addition of Nana Cherry certainly adds a welcome warmth to their sound. Just listen to the quietest song on the album, Dream Baby Dream. Dream Baby Dream just heard a snippet from Dream Baby Dream, originally by the American electropunk duo Suicide, here covered by Nene Cherry and The Thing on their album The Cherry Thing. Dream Baby Dream is one of six cover versions on this eight-track album, and they do cover a lot of ground stylistically. Not only are avant-garde legends such as the aforementioned Don Cherry and Ornette Coleman represented, they also do versions of contemporary hip-hop and R&B artists such as MF Doom and British singer Martina Topley Bird, and their take on Stooges' Dirt is simply blistering. Nene Cherry holds her own against the sonic attack from The Thing, making this the best of both worlds. I'm pretty sure you won't hear another album like The Cherry Thing this year, or the next ones for that matter. Music from The Cherry Thing, courtesy of our guest DJ Marius Asp of public broadcaster NRK in Oslo, Norway. You can see the video for Nena Cherry's Buffalo Stance and videos by The Thing at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. Always wonder why my mama left town New Haven ain't a bagger song When nobody knows your name
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International